This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. With no shame here, we are going to dive into the negative. We are not playing nice today. We are not going to give plaudits to the leaders of the various political parties for their wondrous performance or their lovely sayings or catchphrases they tried to use in the, in the debates, especially last night. There are things that all three of the major leaders, Andrew Horvath, uh, Doug Ford, all of them that have said Kathleen Wynne that have said that are just plain stupid, plain embarrassing, plain insulting to the people of Ontario who are supposed to be casting ballots for one of these people or another party. But for today, we're going to stick with the main three because one of them is going to win. And I want to get into that today because, again, this I think we should be able to do better. So let's just stick with the negative. I know people say, you can't talk negative. We're going to do negative today because we're going to talk about things that have been said that I just can't believe have been offered to the voters in this province. Brad Clark is a former city councillor. He's a former MPP. He knows this game. He is now the principal of Maple Leaf Strategies. He joins me now. Brad, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, as always. I want to go through each of the three leaders and three parties and give equal time for insult and offense because they all deserve it. And let's start with the Conservatives here because I'm looking, we are now less than two weeks, roughly two weeks away from the election, and they still don't, and I know people have talked about this a lot, they still don't have a costed platform. How is that possible? I don't know how it's possible, and I find it incredibly frustrating uh, especially coming from the progressive conservatives who historically um, have that fiscal imperative in mind. So if you're going to run the province uh, like a business, then you would think that you would actually have a costed business plan to present to the voters. And especially, well, I understand that what happened with the leadership with Patrick Brown and everything was a, it caught them off guard to some degree. So Doug Ford came in cold, but I understand also that he is going to want to make his own platform, but surely there were some things in the Patrick Brown book that they could take from. Surely not everything was uh, uh, opposable. So you could at least have a place to start and work from there. Well, yeah. <laughs> The average person would have expected that they would have looked at the platform that was endorsed by the candidates and went through that platform and said, okay, this is out, this is out, this is in. We understand he doesn't support carbon tax and that's out. And then do the mathematical calculations to present to the public, uh, this is what the costing would be. It's equally more frustrating, to be honest, Scott, that uh, they consistently keep saying the cost of platform is coming but we're already into advanced polls and there's no cost of platform. So that, I mean, a pock on their house for that. Yeah, and furthermore, on this one for the Conservatives, it seems to me that Doug Ford, with the thing like the buck of beer that he brings up, I, I don't think that a dollar for a can or a bottle of beer is really a compelling or driving election issue that most Ontarians have said, you know what I'm really waiting for is cheaper beer. I, it seems like they're dangling shiny objects to try and distract from the fact that there's no costed platform. Well, and if you want to respect business leaders, then you would allow the business leaders to make the decisions on the type of beer that they're selling. Not all beer is equal, and many people are willing to pay more for beer that actually tastes really good as opposed to some of the buck of beer, which tastes like American beer. Or worse. Or worse. <laughs> or, or previously <laughs> used beer. On, it's yeah. like stuff we can't say on radio, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> previously enjoyed beer. Recycled beer. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. Let us move along then, because there, there's a service. I, as I say, I'm baffled by Doug Ford standing up there, arguing that he is the financial protector, but not showing how he is going to protect. I find that baffling. Kathleen Wynne now stands in front of us and yesterday talks about how, yes, we've had 15 years to do things, not her personally, Dalton McGinty and her, but they've had 15 years to do things. It hasn't been done, but we're going to do better now. Trust us because now we're going to get it right. This to me is the height of insulting. You've had 15 years. If you couldn't figure out by now what needs to be fixed and how to fix it, it's just almost galling to say that, yeah, well, now we get it. Well, forget Dalton McGinty. Let's just look at the five years that Kathy and Wynne was premier. And during that five years, they capped funding for hospitals at less than 1%. Uh, 
um, and hallway medicine, which they're all now using as, as the catchphrase, really took off because the hospitals had serious demands on them from an aging population, and they were not getting an increase in operating expenditures like they thought. The doctors, the OMA, um, they went to war with the doctors, and they unilaterally put in a contract for them, and now they're in arbitration. Um, so uh, you could go down a long list in the last five years, and then all of a sudden your platform says, well, we're going to fix that. But you were the government during the last five years. So people are right to say, I'm a little bit curious here. How come you didn't do it if it was so important five years ago? Yeah, you're, it's like saying, I'm going to give you the medicine to cure your illness, but that you actually injected them with the illness to begin with. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. We are talking about all three of the major party leaders and some of the things that they have told us as voters or peddled to us as suckers and expected us to buy or to accept or to somehow overlook. Well, we're not going to do that tonight. Brad Clark, former MPP, former city councilor, he joins us now. And we were in the middle, we went to commercial break there, of talking about the liberals and how they've had... We talked about the conservatives, if you, by the way, are just joining us. We talked about them first. The, the, the liberals now have had 15 years but are now saying, yeah, but now we get it. Now we can fix all the things we got wrong. But, Brad, what really made me almost fall out of my chair yesterday when I heard this was when Kathleen Wynne took aim at the NDP for cozying up to the unions, for being too tight with the unions. And I'm thinking, this is pretty darn rich, (laughs) considering that for 15 years the liberals have suckled on the union's teat. And now that they've undone the latch, they're saying that this is somehow wrong. This was I could not believe she actually went there. (laughs) Andrea couldn't believe it either. (laughs) She started laughing. Um, there's no doubt that, that the NDP has many union leaders and unions that are supporting them. Of course. And they've made no qualms about it from day one. Their entire existence has been very pro-labor. Uh, but to um, all of a sudden watch uh, the leader of the Liberals um, professing indignation because the NDP are cozying up to the, ND, uh, to the, the labor unions when they actually did it for the last 15 years, and they did it successfully until all of a sudden people started realizing that the liberals were no longer paying attention to the people who were giving them their advice. Uh, it is rich. It's well, not only, not only not paying attention, but when the polls began to show, I think, that there was no chance the liberals were going to win again, I think the union people, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, they're not stupid. Let's align ourselves now with a party that we can't align ourselves with the conservatives. So let's align ourselves with the one party that may have a chance. And then if they win, we're in the good graces. And, and I suspect that there was some quid pro quo uh, along the lines of banning back to work legislation by the NDP. Uh, Andrea has made that known that she will not. Uh, she promises not to use back to work legislation, which I think is a huge mistake. We have uh, very balanced labor laws in the province of Ontario. We allow uh, people to go on strike and have um, um, different forms of of showing their um, disagreement over labor labor disputes. Uh, But at the end of the day, when uh, students' uh, year is in jeopardy, there's a threshold, and you have to order them back to work. I remember ordering um, garbage uh, workers in Toronto back to work, um, in 2003, because uh, they'd been out on strike and there was the garbage was piling up on the streets. Yeah. There was rats everywhere. The smell was horrendous. The Pope was coming. The Queen was coming, and there was no way they were going to solve the impasse. So we brought in back-to-work legislation, and I I put right into the legislation that they'll have binding arbitration, and they they were pleased with the outcome in the end of well, the binding arbitration. Brad, that takes us to the NDP. We've talked about the Conservatives, we've talked about the Liberals as far as the things that are stupid and unbelievable and just incredible that they would try and peddle this to us. Andrea Horvath says that she will not use back-to-work legislation at any point if they get elected, which seems to me that you are showing your hand and you have now given every single public service union a license to extort the government and, by extension, the taxpayers. How is this not the stupidest negotiating thing in the history of negotiations? It it shocked me, um, and yes, I'd say it is stupid, 
um, because what they are setting up is that the uh, unions will be able to blackmail the public sector. Yes. We're going to stay out until you give us exactly what uh, we want. And her answer for how you will prevent this is that, well, we'll, we won't have strikes because we'll deal with it before they go on strike. Well, all that means is we're going to give you massive increases to make you happy enough so you won't strike. It, it is, it, to me, I, I heard this and I went, are, uh, real, like this is this may be one of the most idiotic things I've heard in this election. It, uh, I would tend to agree. It is incredibly misguided and naive uh, if they think that they will be able to uh, resolve labor disputes before they even start. And the only way you're going to do that is opening up your your wallet. Well, and that's the other thing that I wanted to ask you about from the NDP as we go through the list of the parties. She has repeatedly said it's her election camp, the the uh, commercials that we're seeing that we are going to ask, not force, ask the very rich among us to give a little bit more. <laughs> when you look at their platform, there. I mean, Doug Ford. You can agree or disagree on a lot of things, but he is. He had to be right yesterday when he said that they are going to massacre the middle class. There's no the the very rich giving a, asking for a little bit more is not going to pay for what they're asking to do. I crunched the numbers, and they talk about the NDP are saying they're going to charge an additional one percent of income tax on Ontarians earning two hundred thousand dollars or more a year, and three um, percent. Uh, no, 2% on anyone earning $300,000 or more a year. When I looked at the numbers as to how many people in Ontario are actually making that kind of money, there's 110,000 people making $200,000 a year, and there's a little over 120,000 making 300000 So roughly 300 people, or 300,000 people in the province of Ontario are making that kind of money. And so for 2%, let's say, even if we go all of them at 2%. Do the I'm, math, it doesn't add up. It doesn't come close to adding up. It, no. So somewhere, we've only got two options, and we're out of time, unfortunately. Either we go into massively more debt, or the middle class and everyone else gets hit with higher taxes, but it's all of them. Look, all of them. Brad, we got to go. I, I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for this. <laughs> no problem, Scott, anytime. All of them are telling you stuff that is patently ridiculous and insulting to your intelligence. Every single one of them. And they deserve to be called on it because it's stupid and it's insulting and they think you're an idiot that you would actually buy any of this stuff. If any of them come to your door, challenge them. I don't think they will at this point. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. I don't know where your age is. I don't know how old you are. I don't know where you fall in the whole era thing. But when I was in elementary school, the wagon wheel was the king of lunchroom desserts. The wagon wheel was the thing you had to have if you were having a quality school lunch. It was a, you know what these are, right? These big round cookie marshmallow chocolate combination. They were fantastic. But the emphasis was as a kid, they were big. They were a big dessert. They were fantastic. It was a handful. Now, maybe it's because I've grown. Maybe it's because I'm bigger now. But my wife brought home a box of wagon wheels the other day. And of course I broke into them because they're wagon wheels, fond memories. These things are tiny. There is almost nothing to them. Three medium-sized small bites, and these things are done. And I'm sitting there going, what happened? Did I just grow up, or have these things gotten a lot smaller? Well, if you really want to know, and I haven't done the study on wagon wheels, but I'm talking generally, they are getting smaller. Food is getting smaller. It's called shrinkflation. It's a real thing. Uh, New estimates say 15 to 20% of all packaged foods in Canada have shrunk over the past five years. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois is a professor of food distribution and policy in the Faculty of Management and Agriculture at Dalhousie University. He's a guy we love having on this show. We've had him on many times before. Uh, Sylvain, thanks for doing this today. No problem. This drives people nuts, doesn't it? When they go to get their food and for whatever reason, suddenly the thing they remember is all of a sudden an awful lot smaller than what they recall. Yes. Uh, just for the record, though, uh, you, you've grown. I know, that's true. You've eaten a wagon wheel, so there's there's a a two-legged process there. But they are smaller, though. I guarantee they're smaller than they once were. (laughs) Yes, they've they've shrunk. And so uh, lots of cakes. uh, We've seen uh, 
cakes, uh, shrink, uh, chocolate bars, granola bars, cookies, crackers, uh, jam, uh, bottles, uh, you name it. Uh, actually, 15 to 20% of everything we, we see at the center of the store has been affected by what we call uh, the shrinkflation effect. And it's obvious why food companies are doing this, right? I mean, it's no, it doesn't take a genius to figure out why they would do this. Well, the food industry has three choices, really. One, they can actually increase prices. But we know how we feel about food prices. Uh, if they go up, we just walk away. And, and they know that. So that's not necessarily an option they like to consider. Secondly, refum- reformulation. They can actually change an ingredient for a cheaper one uh, to decrease uh, the cost of production. That's not always easy because you can compromise the taste. You can compromise a bunch of things that people actually like. And again, you can scare consumers away. So the last option, which is really the easiest and less risky for the food industry, is is to shrink the product. And so you keep the same price point, but you offer less as a result. Are we generally, though, seeing that the package is shrinking so that we visually, when we go to the store, see that it's smaller? Or is it more that they keep the packaging as close to the actual size that we recall and is what is inside that gets downsized? It's a good question. So the, so the industry is not misleading the public, of course, because you do have access to accurate information. But they do play on visuals, for sure. Uh, so they actually may sell you the same box, same size, uh, but in the inside, you may actually have less crackers or less granola bars, or your granola bars may be smaller, or they could fill the box with uh, more plastic or something like that. Uh, with jars, they can actually uh, sell you the same. So you could see the jar. It would look the same, but if you flip it around, you'll see that the bottom is lifted. Yep, the concave bottom, yes. Yeah, exactly. So you include less quantity. Those are the kinds of things, subtle ways to sell to the public. Well, you're getting the same product, but in actuality, you're actually getting less. But it kind of, uh, you say it's not dishonest. It's kind of tricky, if nothing. It may not be dishonest because they're not, if you want to really study the label, you can see, oh, it's fewer milliliters or whatever, but it's tricky. It's irritating, actually. It's irritating. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's irritating because a lot of people uh, wouldn't necessarily appreciate that. What's What's been happening, though, is really interesting. Uh, you know, for many years we go out, we buy food, and, and then once we're done with our cereal box or we're done with whatever we're buying we just uh well we just throw it away and we buy another box uh what we now have is social media and with social media we have a collective memory of how things used to look like mm-hmm. over you know many years and all of a sudden the food industry is exposed to evidence because uh, i mean all of us, we don't remember how big things were, and, and then you, you, had, you had your wagon wheel example. I actually have one example myself. Uh, a few years ago, uh, we actually had a uh, Easter egg hunt at home, and one of the eggs was never found, the, these Cadbury chocolate eggs. Oh, yeah, okay, all remember? right. Yeah, absolutely. I've eaten yeah. more than a few. So a few years ago, we moved from Guelph, Ontario, to Halifax right here, and we actually found an egg. And I actually realized it was 11 grams larger, bigger than the ones that are being sold right now at the same price. But do and, we do we change our habits though? If we if we even if we know that we are being not getting the same amount, do we get angry and say, "Well, I'm not buying that anymore. I'll go find something else," or do we just suck it up and buy it? Well, it's across the board. So if you decide to boycott a specific brand. Chances are the other brand you're considering has done the same thing. It's actually, and it's not only in Canada, it's everywhere. It's in the United States, in Europe, everywhere. It's the cost of food. What has happened in the last decade is the cost of inputs. So uh, grains, proteins, uh, they're, they're becoming more expensive. And that's why uh, in recent years you're seeing uh, more and more companies uh, interested in, say, crickets. Because it's a cheap source of protein. <laughs> I mean, oh, it, heaven help us if we're getting towards the uh, the insects for our snack foods. I know. Is this not though partially our fault? Because 
if we go and buy the same thing over and over and we seem to be okay with this, what's the reason why they wouldn't go ahead and do this to save money, the companies? Well, it's also about expectations around, around food prices. So companies do know that we're price sensitive as, uh, as consumers. So the last thing they want to do is increase prices. Uh, I would argue that it's, it's really time to, to think about quality, and, and there's a cost to making food. I mean, that's the reality of, of doing business. And, and of course, uh, we're, we're, we often link food products or, 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 or the grocery store with food security in general, but in a grand scheme of things, food is actually quite cheap in Canada compared to other countries around the world. We've been, we've been spoiled as consumers, uh, really. So it, I would say it's, it's, it, it, it would be an invitation uh, for all of us to think about you know, what food means to all of us. And, but that pressure is absolutely real, and that's why we're seeing uh, our uh, food products shrink, or they've, they've been shrinking a lot over the last few years. Last thing, uh, how much, we, we have seen a lot in recent years of companies that have spun their marketing campaign to now talk about portion sizes, that we are health conscious, that we have fewer calories, that it's a smaller portion size. How much of this is the country, the companies actually caring about the consumer's health and how much they're eating and how much is this a brilliant potentially way to not package as much food into the product, make it sound like they're doing something really good and saving money at their end? No, absolutely. I, I think it's a, it's a great uh, invitation uh, for consumers to think differently about food. We, are, we do waste a lot of food at home. Uh, anywhere between 30 to 40% of everything we buy, we actually throw out. So those are, that's one factor that is real. But I would say that for companies, they're being more careful with how they market products, I have to tell you. I don't, do you remember uh, Subway's uh, scandal selling the foot-long sandwich? And there were a lot of pictures on social media showing that that foot long was about 10 to 11 inches long, <laughs> not, not 12 inch. And so since then, Subway has been very careful selling you sandwiches that are foot long. So that's a lesson that the food industry has learned. If you sell a product based on size, be careful. I suppose everyone has a different size foot. Theoretically, you can say it was the size of my foot. And then that's uh, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. Always love having you on the show. Thanks for doing this today. No problem. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Don Robertson of the Dundas Real McCoys, of Calm Choice Realty, of a variety of other things. And by the way, uh, a man who I want to commend you because uh, when the Hamilton Bulldogs were on their run and won the Ontario Hockey League Championship. I saw an ad in the paper from the Dundas Real McCoys congratulating them. That was very, uh, that was very classy of your organization. Well, we try and do the right things once in a while. It was a wonderful achievement, and they deserve the accolades. They did very well. Top three in Canada. They did, and I want to ask you about this, though, because, I, yeah, top three in Canada, they were, um, it was a terrific year. And, and I think made some inroads with the community, I think. We'll wait and see if that, in fact, is the case. Boy, I sure hope so. If that doesn't do it, I don't know what they want, blood. Well, we'll see. We'll see in the <laughs> fall whether, whether it makes a difference. But one of the things, and, I, and I mean, you've been in hockey a long, long, long time. So the Hamilton Bulldogs, I think, for as great a season as they had, I believe they led the free world in post-game interviews where they talked about how they were stymied by a hot goalie, where they just couldn't score on this hot goalie. And I, at a certain point, I started to think it's impossible that one team could find itself facing that many goalies who happen to have the best game of their life, always against the Hamilton Bulldogs. And I got thinking, you know what? I think it may have had something to do with the style of the play, of play that they were very skilled and took a lot of shots and had a lot of great passing plays, but didn't do, didn't always get in front of the net and create chaos. Can, can that happen? Can it work that you can actually make an opposing goalie play great by giving him enough shots at the beginning that he can see and start to feel really good and then he gets really feeling great? Well, you never want a guy to get into a groove. You, but want, that's, to, you want to get one by him early. Just to make just to rattle them a little bit if you can, but generally speaking, 
Um, all goalies, pardon me, by the time they get to that stage of the year, there's not many teams that get there with a crappy goalie. No. Nope. So they're all capable. So they're they're all capable. I've always said to our group over the years that we're going to need our goaltender for us to win a championship, to win a game in a series that we don't deserve to win. So you need good goaltending. They can't cost you a game, and they have to be good enough to steal you a game. But if you consistently get an awful lot of shots and start saying it's always because of the goaltender, I didn't see the Hamilton Bulldogs play enough to judge them. But I will tell you, when you give up a lot of shots, or when you take a lot of shots and not not going in, it's because somebody's not paying the price in front of the net. And you can't have too many fancy guys. You've got to have a balance of guys that will stand in front of the net, like Dave Anderchuk and Phil Esposito and, boy, am I ever dating myself. But you know what I mean? I mean, the game I know has changed and I know it's fast, but the reason I say that is because if the goaltender gets a clean look at them at that stage of the season, they're likely going to stop it. But I am a firm believer that you can heat up, you, the opponent, can heat up an opposing goalie. Goaltending, like hitting in baseball or like whatever else, is so much based on confidence. And if you feel good about what you're doing, and so if you face a bunch of shots that you're able to see early on and start to feel that groove, goalies play better when they are confident. It's just a, it's we know this is the case. They play better, and if you let them start to feel great because they've seen a lot of shots, then when you get the really good chances later on, they're feeling good and they stop it. Well, I'll tell you, and anybody that watches a fair amount of hockey, you don't have to watch it every day, that if the opposing team gets one early and you can pepper a few at them, and if you've ever seen goaltenders after they've given up a bad one and they stop it and they look behind them to see if it squeaked through, you're now into his head because now he's not sure what he's stopping and what he's not stopping, and he's a bit scared. And he's feeling small. Yes. Physically, you, you better feel small. pour it on and kick the snot out of him while you can because if he comes up with a couple big saves and gets his confidence back, he can shut the door on you. It was... Um it's it was a, it, no. It was something that I, if there was one knock on the Bulldogs this year, that to me would be it. They did so many things so well. The one thing they struggled all season with was to just muck it up in front of the net and make it difficult on opposing goalies. At times they did it, and they had great success. And then they would get away. And I think in the Memorial Cup, I think the one knock was that they got away from that a little too much. And uh, anyway, that said, what does happen with this team next year? I don't mean the team itself. I mean, in this community, is is something like this enough to change attitudes and to convince people that they want to go take a look? Or in Hamilton, are we a stubborn city that just will not buy in based on something like this? It'll be until the next show me. Well, I said last week that uh, I went to the Wednesday game in the finals, and Cops Coliseum can still be a lot of fun with a lot of people there. The challenge that the Hamilton Bulldogs will have to eternity is the fact that there'll never be a demand for a ticket in this mm-hmm. city because you, it, you, you, in essence, at the junior level and the American League level or any level outside the National Hockey League, you can't sell a building out. It's too full. If you get 10,000 there, the temptation will be to, why don't we let another two or 3,000 in the upper deck? So creating a demand for tickets has always been a challenge for any organization that doesn't sell out on a regular basis. And you can't create that demand. And that's that's one of the challenges of, uh, of Steve Steos and, and Michael Andelar is how do they create that demand? I mean, you've got to get to six or 7,000 season tickets. And, boy, that's a, that's a big job. When, when people know that they'll be able to you know, go when they like, and there's no bad seat in the bottom bowl. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing they have done, and the previous regime did this, um, you know, you're checking out at Fortino's and seeing a ticket for 10 bucks for the AHL Bulldogs, and I'm going, 
we charge more than that for the real McCoys. This is yeah. not good for our business. No, they haven't. They have, and they haven't been doing that. I mean, there's been some promotions and stuff, but of very few. Of course, there is, but very few. They've, they've, they, you've bought a ticket for the most part if you're going to a game. And and you know what, the Tie Cats have got away from that as well. You can't. You feel like a. Uh, horse's butt when you're sitting beside a guy and you paid 27 and he paid 650 because he bought his Slurpee at the 7-Eleven. <laughs> well, they used to do that. They used to do that with the Florida Panthers. You'd oh, buy, yeah. buy a hot dog and a Slurpee and get a free Florida Panthers ticket. So you have to create value. The Bulldogs have done a wonderful job. I think they've created their value. The challenge is create a demand. And I am sure, I know if I was down there, I would have every guy account executive I've got out there trying to pedal season tickets and pedal them hard and ride the wave because it's going to be a short wave. Speaking of demand. Summertime. Yeah, no, no. speaking of demand, uh, Stanley Cup final start tonight in Vegas. Is it, is this, is what's happened this year good for the Vegas Golden Knights long term? Because there's two ways to look at this. The one is that you've created such excitement that people will come back. The other is they can't possibly ever live up to this billing again, so anything from here on is going to be a disappointment. Well, there's two things, and I know exactly why they're there. It's climate change. Everybody blames everything on climate change, so that's why the... I see. You were being sarcastic there. (laughs) Surprisingly (laughs) enough, I was. Well, it's... It's an interesting scenario, right? You want to have success. I mean, the only success they needed this year was to get past 15 or 20 wins. I think they got past 50. Yeah, an enormous success would have been making the playoffs. So in a world that says, what have you done for me lately? You kind of wonder what will happen down there. But they have now, I'm sure, created a demand for their tickets. The thing I'm excited about for them is is the NFL's coming to town, and that juggernaut in sports in the U.S. is huge. These guys have firmly created a footprint for themselves. Uh, I haven't heard, and I've talked to a couple of guys that, that would know. I mean, they weren't giving free tickets out. They were selling them, and they can sell them for more money next year. And sometimes their opening ceremonies are worth the price of a ticket. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd be excited to see it's going to be on right after this show, and uh, I know why they waited to bring it on after this show because they didn't want everybody listening to us. But uh, the opening ceremonies are going to be cool. And was it the last round first game yet? Or the one game against Winnipeg where they were blowing up the Jets, and it was – I don't watch opening ceremonies, but I wanted to watch that one, and tonight will be great. Well, some people have complained that Vegas is schlocking up the opening ceremonies. They're turning it into a Vegas production, and it was like, well, what, Vegas. Exa- what exactly did you expect they were going to do? What did you? I I was shocked that it took until the third round to trot out Wayne Newton at all. I figured that Wayne Newton would be buried under center ice or something, singing under in some sort of box under center ice in a capsule. They'd have him or doing something stupid like that. I understand the Rat Pack are going to sing the national anthem. Yeah. That's how good they all are. All by they're, hologram. They're bringing them all back. It's, uh, I don't know, Scott, I would, if, if given uh, an option of going to the Stanley Cup Finals or winning 20 games, I'd take the Stanley Cup Finals. So I can't see how it's going to hurt them. The expectations well, are high, though. Only question. that, yeah, what happens next year if they return to Earth? What happens if next year they actually look like an expansion team? Because now, you know, some of the, I hate to use cliches, but some of the hunger is gone or guys are thinking now they deserve more money or whatever else, which happens on every team. What happens if they come back to Earth? Can is all of a sudden everyone in Vegas just going, okay? When's the NFL arrive and they just move away from this, as opposed to a build where you get people engaged and they stay with it and they're really excited about getting somewhere? Outside of just living and playing hockey in Vegas, what does it do? Because they have tremendous room in their salary cap. What does it do when they call John Traveris? What does it do when they call Carlson in Ottawa now and say, how would you like to be in Vegas? It's kind of cool. We can pay you as much as you want because we have room and we now have credibility. Like the phone calls for the free agents this year are far different than them performing like everybody assumed they would perform. You know who looks like an idiot this year as a result of the way they performed? Remember in the expansion draft? A few people, but... In the expansion draft, when Dion Phaneuf wouldn't waive his no-trade clause so they could put him 
into Vegas. He's sitting at home now. And I mean, he's married to Alicia Cuthbert, so I mean, life is not totally horrible. But I mean, he's sitting at home, wherever home is, and he could have been playing for the Vegas Golden Knights for the Stanley Cup starting tonight. And now, he looks ridiculous now. Didn't look ridiculous at the time. It looked like Ottawa had just been one game from the final. You know, I got to stick with Ottawa. Oh, well, this is the team that's going to go somewhere. Ottawa finishes second last in the league or whatever. And it he's was. not even in Ottawa. And he got moved end of the season anyway. To L.A. Close enough. But it yeah, didn't I work think... out well. So, uh, it, it the thing that's going to be curious for me again is what happens with the free agents because it just became a real place to but go But do you want do you want to sign free agents? Do you want to actually go out and blow your money on a bunch of big name guys or do you want to say we'll give everyone on this team. You like playing on this team, you've enjoyed this season. We've obviously done pretty well. We'll give 10% across the board to everybody. Everyone's getting a 10% increase. Are we willing to stay around? No, they won't do that. Well, I know they won't, but they could, and they would. that would be an no. interesting way to do it. That's they won't do that because nobody will stay when you have a bad year and the tenant slips and says, look, at, you were good. I remember when you were good to me, I'm going to play for six hundred grand a year. I mean, the world doesn't work that way, but it'll be, it'll be interesting when the dust settles. And do you want, you know, if... You have an opportunity as a high-end free agent and somebody's got cap room. Do you want to go to Arizona or do you want to go to Vegas? Or do you want to go to Winnipeg? And God bless Winnipeg. But Vegas or Winnipeg is a pretty easy call for a lot of people. Yeah, I would say that Winnipeg's Winnipeg's draw right now for free agents is a veteran guy who is nearing the end of the road, who can still be useful, who thinks, i got to go to a team where I might have a chance to win a cup and I will live there for a year or two. Yeah, and in, 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 in defense of Winnipeg, they were probably the most talented team in the Final Four. Oh, for sure. I, I was positive when they got into the Final Four they were going to win the cup. I, I was sure they were going to win. I should have texted you today. I, I'm sure the tape's in there somewhere where you and I – both picked Vegas and Washington for the Stanley Cup final. I don't know if they can dig that up or not, but it's... Yeah, we picked them uh, for the final, and as of uh, last night, we both made that prediction. A um, <laughs> little, little late. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, am, I would bet money that there was not a single bet made at any sports book anywhere in the world at the start of this year that picked a Washington-Vegas Stanley Cup final. Yeah, none. Zero. You could have made almost every now, other combination, and that would not have been on the list. There will be some bets that Washington was going to get there and Vegas was going to get sure. there, mostly based on odds. Or based on just the fact that that was the person's favorite team, well, so let me throw 100 bucks down. Last week, my neighbor came over for a glass of tea, and um, we, he was in Vegas last year around this time and said, you know, he thought about just throwing five bucks down because the odds were so great. It's kind of, And he, he akined it to... Uh, going to the Kentucky Derby and placing a $2 bet on every horse. So you had the winning ticket and not cashing it in, just showing everybody that you had it. Yep. Right? And it would have been a great lark. Well, would have been a great investment at that point. Yeah, well, until it's... Thinking I, you're just throwing the 5 or 10 until bucks Until it's 1,000 to 1, odds comes in, and then you go, okay, I'll, I'll cash that one. I'm going to... Yeah, I'm going to cash this one. That one I'll do. I'll take a photocopy of it. Who do you want to win now? Who uh, Do you have a... Speed, do you have a horse in this race? No, it was like the final four. I'd have been happy if any of them were in. I, I'd like to see a Canadian team in, but I thought the intrigue of Vegas was fun. Mm, Vegas has more Canadians than anyone else. I did, yes. Don Sherry, I'm sure, is going to mention that. Um, I was I was kind of glad Washington got there. I said that to you before, that Ovechkin was there, and I like the fact that he wanted to go to the Olympics and pay, play for his country. And I like that. He's playing. He's a horse. He's a big guy. He doesn't float around. He runs people over, and he plays the game hard. So... It wouldn't upset me. I'm okay if either one of them win. No, I don't have a horse in a race. That's a long answer. I I really... Who do you want to win? I would really like Vegas to win. If you're coming this far, you may as well do it. Yeah, I think at this point, it's such an incredible story that it just deserves to be capped off. And and you know what? There's also a part of me, and this is probably not a... Uh, a a part of me that I'm particularly proud of, but Alex Ovechkin not having a championship and being a great player and always being uh, that's a not a story he wants to see, but that's also a 
a story that is that I'm okay with telling that one. I mean, I, it, I got nothing against Alice Ovechkin. I'm just thinking for storylines, what I do for a living. I, you know, you, you look for a, for stories that you would tell or that you can. Sh- that to me is a story. There are a lot of great players that never won a Stanley Cup. A lot, right? Marcel Dion, Matt Sundin. All, I mean, there's all kinds of tremendous hockey players that not only didn't they win a championship, never got a sniff. They never got the finals. Well, everybody on the Leafs ever since 1967. Well, if you played, George Armstrong. Davey Keon. I mean, I saw a bunch of them play. Well, I, I'm in the last 50 years. I'm 100 years old, though. Yes. I wasn't very old when they won, I'll tell you. I wasn't born, just for the record. I was I was uh, four or five months away from being born. I was still gestating <laughs> when they last won their cup. I re, uh, so it's been, um, I, I have, in my life, I'm not making it up. In my life, I have not been alive for a Leafs Stanley Cup championship, which is. Yeah, but you're only 50. Yeah, but it's. You know, you know how ridiculous there. that is. You're it's, only fifty. It's getting there. I mean, it's not like the Chicago Cubs was. I don't think I'm going to see another one. I don't know. I don't know if they don't. Uh, if something doesn't happen pretty soon, if they somehow dip anyway, it's it's. Um, I, I would like Vegas to win just because I think that it's. Um, at this point, you may as well wrap it up. You may as well finish it and finish yeah. the story and make it the most ridiculous. And and we've said this before. You know who's really not wanting Vegas to win? Whoever is about to be hired as general manager of the Seattle team, <laughs> who now has the single most impossible job in the history of the planet. I mean, designing this, the Apollo space mission to get to a man on the moon is going to have less pressure than being the guy who has to follow the Vegas expansion team model. And you, you can bet there's going to be one of the world's biggest verbal wrestling matches when they ask the GMs or when they tell the GMs, we're going to, we're going to have the same draft set up for Seattle's expansion team as Vegas. There's going to be guys in there having heart attacks and strokes saying, you can't do this to us again. Well, but you assuming know, that it was the system, not George McPhee. It was two things. It was George McPhee, who was the general manager of Vegas, but he also played a lot of these GMs. The guy who I look at now and I think that most of the teams are going to follow the lead of is Ken Holland in Detroit, who simply said, take whoever you want. Don't bug me. I'm not making any trades with you. I'm not giving you draft picks to protect. You take who you want. Away we go. And the reason, part of the reason George McPhee has been so successful and is set up to be so successful is because a lot of guys gave huge amounts of the farm or the draft farm to protect players that maybe shouldn't have been protected. Let them go. Save the best players you have and let the other guys go. Well, there's a lot of GMs and you'd have to break it down and you sure can't do it in the time frame we have. Nor am I interested in going through that many lists because it's not what I do. But it'd be very interesting to see who... Who gave George McPhee a draft pick not to not to protect this player X, and the guy he took is now in the Stanley Cup Finals because of that? Like, you know how many mistakes were made by general managers? There were a managers? lot of mistakes, and a lot of non-mistakes by McPhee. Because if the GMs were that clever and protected the right group, you would have to assume they'd be further ahead than Vegas. So there's 30 guys out there going, except for Ken Holland going, Wow, I hope the owners don't sort this out because I gave away a two second round pick, so they didn't take Radley and Robertson. Those My guys stink, and look who's look who they took. Look from who me. they took, and I holy crap! Why didn't I keep that well, guy? Look, and I, I mean, kept the, these two slugs. Now there were other factors. Involved. Oh, I'm pretty old, so no, no. But there was there were other factors involved, and we got to take a break here. But I mean, one of the things was there were a bunch of guys that the teams were wanting Vegas to take off their hands, bad contracts, and if you will take. This terrible contract will give you so and so and so and so. Well, you know, all right. So that that's a trade off. They all come down to mistakes, though. They all come down. Well, almost all, almost all, yeah, almost all. I mean, okay, Detroit. Detroit, You can only protect so many players. That's unfair that they all come down to mistakes, but there will be a bunch of them. There was a lot, for sure. There were a lot. You can't be in the Stanley Cup Finals in your first year without someone making some mistakes. Without twenty, you you can't make it with twenty five mistakes. But there was a lot of them. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. 
The game of baseball is very concerned by two things that are happening in the game this year so far. One of them is attendance being down, although much of that can be chalked up, they think, to just horrendous weather at the start of the season. For you know, It was a terrible spring. It was very difficult to get people into the games. They had a lot of rainouts and snowouts and freezeouts and all the rest. But the other factor that is being cited as a huge cause of concern for baseball is the number of strikeouts in the game that for the first time ever, and it's now happened for, or it's, it's happened once and it's on pace to happen a second time in April this year was the first time in the history of baseball that there were more strikeouts than hits for a month. And it's apparently on pace to happen again in May. Is this not just a natural something you have to accept? If you're going to play, if you're going to have guys swinging for the fences to try and hit home runs that everybody loves. Is, is our strikeouts not just something you have to eat as a cost of doing business? What are the stats uh, on the strikeouts versus home runs? Well, home runs run are down ratio. a bit this year, too. See, last year they were up. Last right? year they so were way up. If, when you look at the strikeout ratio to home runs, then you have to pick your poison. You're right. You, as you said, do you want a bunch of home runs? The downside is you get a lot of strikeouts. Um would some of the strikeouts be coming from the way the analytic people who are now running everything, um, they have the shift? Well, there's, well, the strikeouts wouldn't probably have much to do with the shift. Well, do they if guys are trying to slap it and go the other Could. way? Could. If I they're think trying to do things they haven't had to do before. Could. I think. Although I think it's probably a lot more to do with the fact that you've now got very often pitchers starting pitchers who will come out of the game after two rotations through. You'll go through the lineup once, you'll go through the lineup twice, maybe you have five innings. Once upon a time, a starting pitcher, it was not uncommon for a starter to pitch a complete game. In fact, I wrote this but weekend. You're, you're calling Saturday. Yeah. The, 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 the guy. He threw 75 complete games is the all-time. For, Fergie Jenkins, and that was crazy. I mean, the, 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 the guy's arm is dragging behind him. <laughs> uh, Fergie Jenkins, though, in 1971 threw 30 complete games. Which is phenomenal. Which is phenomenal. But now, but now a starter now very not, seldom gets a chance to throw a no-hitter anymore because they can't leave him in long enough. I believe the most no-hitters that anybody threw, the, the, the leader for no-hitters, or for, not no-hitters, for complete games last year was two for a starting pitcher. Two. Yeah. So, consequently, so your point is that it's so harder for batters of, yeah. because they're bringing in specialty guys that are, you bring in a lefty, you bring in a righty. So if you're pitch, if you have four at-bats in a game, chances are now there's a very good chance you're going to see at least three different pitchers in those four at-bats. Guys who all have a different look on their pitch, who have different velocity, might be from the left, might be from the right. As it, you know, one throws a curve, one throws a slider. You can't go up, you can't see him the first time, get some information, see him the second time, get a little more information, and by the third, the third time through, you... you and it's, you know, I, I don't know that you want to put the kind of rules into baseball that handcuff managers, but I would not be opposed. I really would not be opposed to a rule saying how many pitchers you're allowed to have in a game. Barring an injury, I would not be opposed, and I'm not saying put it at a stupid number, but if you say the most pitchers you can put in a game is four, Period. You can use, and however you want to use them, you can use them, but you can use only four pitchers in a game. And that still may not solve the problem we're talking about, but assuming one guy comes in and may not be as sharp and so you don't leave him in as long or he's coming in as a, but you now have guys who are coming in for one batter. Now we've been seeing this for years now, but it's just such specialists that it becomes really difficult. And here's the thing. I think that most baseball fans, there are those who love a pitcher's duel, I think most baseball fans vastly more enjoy a lot of offense. Of course they do. Yeah, there's nothing wrong watching a 9-7 game. When the Jays were in 2015, when they made all those trades. Yep, banging the ball over the park. They hit. They scored 10 runs like 25 times yeah. or more. In, it was just crazy what they were doing. The and people loved it. People they were winning it. and it filled the stadium. Would they have filled the stadium if the Jays were winning all their games one nothing? I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. No, I, I think that's a fair assessment. 
So, you know, I, I don't know what the answer is. They're never going to do something like that. They're never going to put in a rule that says you can only have four pitchers per well, game the, or something. The question I would look at is, and I don't follow the National League closely enough, but I would tend to think that the National League would use more pitchers than the American League because if the pitcher's coming up with a guy on second and third and nobody out and it's the seventh inning, you're yanking him out not because he can't pitch, because you want somebody to hit the ball to go in there. And that's another yeah. And then you put a pitcher in. And then so the National League and American League might have to be different, and then it would be different in the World Series. I I, I don't I don't I, know. I, I like I like home runs. I don't love watching a guy just go up there and wail away or not even swing and just go down swinging. I, Make I, the ball bigger. <laughs> play softball. Have, bring back Eddie Fainer and just play uh, play fast pitch Ooh. now. Uh, I don't know. I, I, this is this is a huge problem. The league is very concerned, apparently, about this, about the number of strikeouts that is spiking. I'm looking at it that it's just simply you've got a lot of players who maybe the shift, because if you're going to be a slap hitter, they, they're taking away a lot of your ability just to hit for singles and stuff. So you Slap hitting, though, I mean... I, who's the last great slap hitter? Ichiro, probably. The last guy... I mean, Tony Gwynn was great at this. Eddie, uh, Ichiro was great at it, but... It's not a sexy thing. No, no, no player. What baseball player today? If you have a choice between hitting three thirty with a whole bunch of singles, or hitting one eighty with forty five homers, is going to say, "Yeah, I'll take the singles." Nobody wants that. All the money is in the home there, runs. There's more money in forty five home runs and more glory and more everything, more attention. More. When was the last time you actually saw, other than a game winning single? When was the last time you saw a highlight for a single? They don't show. Oh, and now he's up with nobody on base, and look how he dribbled that one through the infield. I mean, they don't. Sh- that's not how you get ahead in the game of baseball. He's choked up. He's just going to slap one out there again. This will be fun. Yeah, he rants Mullenixed it. <laughs> no, I mean, you just there's no there's no glory in that. So guys come up swinging for the fences all the time. Swing hard, go down swinging. If you go down swinging, who cares? Well, you'll care. You'll care if you're carrying a battering average of a buck and a half. Not if you hit forty homers. Well, that's true. Yeah, but you better do that. But you better do that. Yeah, if you're in a buck and a half, you better be hitting 40 homers or 35. Or be really good at getting hit by pitches. Or be, <laughs> be Dave Parker. Yeah. Anyway, that's that, that's that's their concern. I, I, I And I, I, I share it to a large degree because I don't think baseball is as good to watch when it's just up to the plate, walk back to the dugout. Up to the plate, walk back to the dugout. And here's the other thing. I have on my phone... I don't know how many other people listening have this, but I have the Major League Baseball app, and it is you pay, and, and it's the um, it's called At Bat, and it's a subscription. You can get it just normally, or you can get it with a subscription where you can watch the games. But anyway, you can get it for free or otherwise. I would, or I would say that probably twice a week now, I get a text message sent because it comes through by having the app, giving you a no hitter alert. And they don't send out the no-hitter alerts until a guy is into the sixth inning with no-hitter. And they never say no-hitter. They're not going to do the jinx, but they say he's dealing. So-and-so's dealing tonight, or so-and-so's got something special going, or whatever else. But it's all the time now. Like, there was a time when a no-hitter was a rarity. Even the thought of a no-hitter was a rarity. Now it's a couple times a week at least that I get a bleep. Nope, so-and-so, a guy I've never heard of who just came out of the Arizona Fall League, who, you know, is now... There's a lot of guys playing in Major League Baseball you've never heard of. No, but they... It's not like we're talking about Nolan Ryan, who threw six or seven in his career, who's doing it again. It's some guy, it's Bucky Glickstein, who just arrived from wherever, and, and he's now got a no-hitter going through seven. It's like, who is this guy? How do you? How are you even seven innings into a no-hitter in Major League Baseball, and no one's ever heard of you? Me. Durham Bulls. Durham Bulls, yeah, I mean, that's right. Yeah, Nuke Lelouch. All right, we'll take a break while we contemplate how to fix other sports as well. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.